0: Let's get an understanding of what the epicenter of the Wallace campaign was like. This home base, this headquarters in LA, of all places, it's in Los Angeles, but it's just teeming with, with white supremacists and, and right-wing conservatives that are drawn to Wallace. This is where Ray and other like-minded folks were, were galvanized by, by what they thought was, a, you know, an actual chance to, to take over the country with their cause. So let me play you some sound from Tom Turnipseed head of the campaign. Yes, his name is Tom Turnipseed. That's how country as fuck Wallace's campaign was. I never will forget a fellow that was one of my top people in, in Los Angeles. And uh, he took me down to the parking lot and, you know, I think it's an old pickup, rolled the tarp back and, and he had in there all kinds of, of military weapons. He had bazookas, machine guns. And I said, what's going on? He says, Oh, we've got maneuvers up in the desert, you know? And I says, for what? And he says, Well, it's our group. I said, was it the National Guard? No, 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 it's a private group. And I said, and I said, What do you call it? He said, Well, it's our militia. Turnipseed says this was one of his top guys. For all we know, Ray knew this guy. Ray was said to be familiar with the Los Angeles Wallace headquarters when he dragged, you know, folks to go there and sign up. That was the sort of crowd that Wallace was attracting. Militiamen with, with heavy artillery and future assassins, Klansmen, terrorists, and conservatives that hadn't yet been radicalized, but but soon would be by this campaign, promising a return to America's lost greatness. The murder
1: of Martin Luther King Jr. is a case that refuses to be closed. Did you fire the shot that killed Dr. Martin Luther King? No, not.
0: I may not get there with you. To know the night And we as a keyboard we'll get to the promise man. The number one question is killing number one question is kin a bit. Stick up another one question is kidding, number one question can a best Stick up another one question
1: is killed, number one question again, a bit. Stick up another one question is kidding, number one question can a bit. Stick up another one question is number
0: one question. Welcome back to the Crocs. So George Wallace makes his unofficial announcement. This is like unofficial, official announcement of his candidacy for president on April 23rd, 1967. It's the same day that prisoner number 00416J breaks out of a Missouri state prison by tucking himself into this crate of bread. And by August, that escaped prisoner, James Earl Ray, was speaking with increasing passion about this, this Wallace guy. That's according to his brother, who he'd meet in Chicago around that time. A few months later, Ray arrives in Los Angeles, and his stay in L.A. coincides with this real big push to get Wallace on the ballot in California. That stay in L.A. for for Ray was by far the longest time he spends anywhere during that year on the run, like multiple months in one place, almost like he was there for a reason. So some quick Background: Because some of you might be wondering why this Southern politician like Wallace would be focusing on California, which we consider, you know, this really liberal progressive state. But Wallace was running as a third party candidate for this newly formed conservative party. It was called the American Independent Party. And California had the earliest deadline to get all the signatures you needed to to get on the ballot for the 1968 election. It had to be done by January 2nd, 1968, you know, for the election in November of that year. And the law was written to make it damn near impossible to get on the ballot. But it was widely understood that that if Wallace's campaign could have success in getting on the California ballot, you know, the hardest first challenge for the campaign, that would determine the campaign's ability to to get on all the other state ballots and and make this, you know, real 50-state push for the White House. So if you're a third-party candidate like Wallace was, or like Libertarians are now and Green Party people, like, you know, in in the contemporary era, you have to jump through all these hoops to get on each state's ballot. The Democrats and the Republicans are, you know, they're already there. And each state has their own different bar to clear to get on the ballot. In California, in in 1967 and 68, they said they needed 66,059 signatures. And they required it in, in record time. But again, it, it was believed that, it, that if Wallace could clear that that really substantial hurdle to get on the California ballot, the rest of the states are going to follow. The rest of the states weren't going to be nearly as hard as California. So California in late 1967 was this furious campaign. It was this campaign before the campaign with Wallace crisscrossing the state like like it's an actual campaign. And his headquarters in L.A. during this time was this buzzing hive of activity. Now, I said signatures earlier, which is not at all the case. That was just kind of an easy way to say it. It it wasn't this ordinary petition type thing. Like, it wasn't just 66,000 signatures in a state as big as California. That'd be easy as shit. It wasn't easy at all. All the supporters had to get Californians to, like, fill out this voter registration thing where they, like, switch their whole damn party affiliation. Like, sign up to be sort of like members of the American Independent Party, basically. It wasn't asking someone just to sort of casually sign their name. It was asking a lot of strangers to have them fill out, like, all this business and, and switch parties. So this whole big thing is happening, and the national press is, is covering it. I mean, everybody's talking about Governor Wallace of Alabama really rallying the the troops in California to get this, get this thing done because, you know, he could make this really sort of historical push for the white house. And, and these racists are just flooding in to work on that effort. It's all hands on deck for, you know, for white supremacists and Ray arrives in Los Angeles, just as this big push comes at the LA headquarters of the campaign. And this, we know that very soon thereafter, Ray is told by the phone company in LA that there is going to be like a delay on on getting new service installed. And Ray explains that he's working for the Wallace campaign and that he needs his installation expedited. That's something that is granted actually by by the phone company. So he says he's working for the Wallace campaign. And then a few weeks later, we know that Ray brings some folks he knew. I hesitate to call them friends. It sounds like Folks he, he knew from, from being out drinking. There's a stripper. There's a bartender. Bartender's brother. And he brings them to the Wallace office in L.A. to get them to sort of reluctantly fill out this registration for Wallace. This is the only payment he asks from the, the stripper, this, this woman, Rita Stein, who needs Ray to drive them to New Orleans to pick up her kid, which they do in, like, record time. They It's like almost in a weekend. They drive straight there and straight back. And the bartender's brother would, would, later recall how, how Ray seemed really comfortable and familiar at the Wallace office when he had dragged them there to, to, to register again, that was all he asked for, for this drive all the way to new Orleans. And, and this guy, uh, this, the bartender's brother, this guy, Charlie Stein, he, he remembered that he thought Ray was involved with the campaign in some way at that point. But as diligently as Ray may have been working on the Wallace campaign, you know, to to get him on the ballot and and move him closer to the White House through legitimate uh, electoral means, he was apparently developing this theory that he could help Wallace by getting rid of King. At least that's what his brother Jerry told author George McMillan a few years later. He said, quote, Ray had it in his head that it would help Wallace if King wasn't around, unquote. Like not around, like gone, like dead gone. And that makes some sense, right? I mean, if you remember last episode, King and Wallace had stood as these two, you know, like towering figures who had been battling since 1963 in Birmingham. And, And Ray became convinced, at least according to Jerry, that... Wallace needed King finally like out of the way. And speaking of Birmingham, Ray goes to Birmingham just before he goes to L.A. Now, we know that for sure. We have records of that. But again, Jerry says that he went there to establish residency in that city and in the state of Alabama. He tells McMillan, he says, quote, Jimmy was going to Birmingham to take out citizenship papers in Alabama. He believed that if he killed King in Alabama, or if he killed him anywhere in the South, it would help him if he showed he was a resident of Alabama. Of course, if he killed King in Alabama, he believed Wallace would eventually pardon him. Not at first, but after a few years when things had cooled off. Unquote. That's what Jerry tells to George McMillan. But but James does establish, you know, residency, a driver's license and, and a license plate and the whole nine in Alabama. And he gets out to LA just in time to be in the, the, the eye of the storm, the eye of, of, of hurricane Wallace. And Wallace is out there in California and he's charging up crowds about this return to white supremacy. And he's bringing all these white supremacists together with these, you know, far right conservatives and, and nativists and xenophobes. And, and I'm sure it must've, felt to Ray and, and those other supporters like, Oh shit, it's, it's, it's actually happening. We're finally building this thing that will return America to where it needs to be. If you're watching the country change, just like right underneath your feet, you know, the civil rights act of 1964, the voting rights act of 1965, the feds are finally enforcing Brown versus the board of education. You know, and here it is, 1967, and and, and everything is changing. And you're like, we, we got, this is our last, this is our last chance to turn back the clock. And plus, it's nice to feel a part of something. That's real. It's comforting to know that there are other people who feel how you feel. They believe what you believe. It strengthens us in, in those beliefs, usually. When we get together, that's like, you know, that's why we go to church. That's why we do a lot of things. That's why we why, why we go to sporting events. You feel more into a team when you're at the game with other fans or you're at a concert with other fans. And now it's harmless when it's a ball game or a concert. But when, when that which joins people together in those sorts of situations is their intense, violent wish to oppress other people, well, that's usually going to, you know, increase... And compound the hatred, just like your love of, of your team or your love of a performer or a band or a rapper or whatever is strengthened by, by seeing them live with other fans. When you leave the Beyonce concert, you're more into Beyonce than you've ever been. It's a thing. It's a basic human thing. And I, and I imagine this is part of the radicalization that happens that Wallace served as this racist magnet for all these folks to get together and get all jazzed together about, about white supremacy. People like to be a part of things. Even James Earl Ray. you feel stronger when you're with people who share your beliefs. That's the whole reason we have rallies. It's the whole reason we do a whole lot of stuff. But I would argue that this might be a secondary component in the end Of the radicalization. I mean, it's the leader himself or herself, but it's you, let's be real. It's usually, it's usually him. It's, it's the leader who, who sort of makes the way for his followers. That sort of right-wing leader gives permission to your feelings. It's okay. It's okay to think of black folks as inferior people who should be kept in a state of, of oppression and apartheid. That's what the leader says. And, and your own feelings are affirmed and, and they're even made stronger. Or the leader says that, you know, undocumented Mexican immigrants are, are killers and, and rapists and they have to be rounded up and expelled or that Muslims should be monitored and, and barred from entering the country. A leader says this and your own feelings are affirmed. Okay, now, obviously those those last examples were, were references to Trump. And that's because I don't, I don't understand this really without Trump. I don't understand. I don't think I could have understood Wallace without Trump. Wallace would have been this guy in, in black and white footage, this figure from the past. He's like a, you know, under glass in a museum or something like I I couldn't, I couldn't get at him. Until Trump, there wasn't another figure you could really compare to Wallace. I wouldn't have understood Wallace's you know, power to, to radicalize without having witnessed the Trump phenomenon. Without having seen what Trump has done. Like I spent a good bit of the last year and a half writing about the campaign and, I, and I've seen Trump speeches going back all the way to the beginning. I've seen what he does to crowds how he captures and expresses these white anxieties and that anger and how he encourages that anger. No one had really done that on the national stage since Wallace. Now, of course, Wallace's politics and and his rhetoric got folded into Republican doctrine, of course. But Republican politicians in those intervening years weren't just like they weren't just coming out and saying shit like Wallace had. They figured out ways to water down and and code their, their racist rhetoric. They figured out the dog whistle where you, you say something that, you know, to one audience might sound innocuous, but to another audience, to a, to a sort of racist audience, it, it clues them in like, Oh, Hey, I got you. This is, this is, this is for white folks. Conservative politicians didn't try to actually unleash the racism like Wallace had. Like, they knew it's. Everybody knows it's there. Everybody knows it's there. Conservative politicians know it's there. But they didn't do the thing that Wallace had, where he's just like, I'm just going to say it. I'm going to fucking say it. Not until Trump. Not until Trump. I'm hardly the only person to make sense of one politician through the other, though. It's just that most folks have been on that vice versa, where they're making sense of Trump through Wallace, and I'm making sense of of Wallace through Trump. MSNBC's Rachel Maddow, she calls Wallace Trump's historical doppelganger.
1: This type of phenomenon, this type of campaign, this is something that has happened in American politics before, with pretty good success. George Wallace was not a joke candidate in 1968. He was a very successful candidate. He won five states. He won 10 million votes. He may ultimately have determined who was elected president that year. And The extent to which we keep saying this year, oh, this is new, this is baffling, this is breaking all the rules, sort of makes for exciting commentary, but it's not true, literally. There is direct historical parallel, both with with this guy and his previous runs for office, and with his historical doppelganger from not that long ago.
0: Maddow did a really great job. She did this really good segment on her show comparing the two politicians. And, and she ran some NBC footage of reporting from, from back in the day, back during Wallace's campaign. And it was so like uncannily similar to how Trump supporters sound that, that I had to get the whole segment. So this is from October 7th, 1968. Listen to this and and replace Wallace with Trump And it's like something you might hear on the news tonight.
1: Contributing editor John Chancellor has been in the South, the Midwest, and the Far West, talking to people planning to vote for Wallace and asking them why. And here's his report. His popularity is a river fed by many streams of discontent. It is wider than the race issue and broader than a Southern movement. His support comes from people who are angry about a lot of things. Mr. Wallace is, uh, he's... I don't know how to put it, he's got guts, let's put it that way, that's about the best way I know
0: him. The man's got guts enough to stand up against all kinds of criticism, and maybe he's not a politician, but that's in his favor as far as I'm concerned, because I'm not either.
1: If Wallace don't
0: win, I believe there's going to be a a lot of angry people. Uh, I just don't know uh, what'll happen. Uh, uh, It's just, with this no law and order, I think if he don't win, we're just in a mess. I think he's the only one that's got guts to clean out the State Department in Washington, D.C. I think he will uh, he's a fighter. He'll stand up for what he believes. In our, if he is elected president, I'll believe that's what he'll do.
1: I am for George Wallace because he stands for states' rights. This is something that has gotten to me the way the government, the federal government, has taken over our schools. The thing that they bring home from school is all slanted toward communism. We need to go back to the principle that God established that our policemen are Authorized by God to be ministers of righteousness and to enforce the law whenever an issue arises
0: I go immediately to the Bible and and find out what the Bible says about this and I was amazed and pleased as I've studied mr. Wallace's platform his statements that he's made to find that uh, in almost every case his his stand is in complete accordance with the the Word of God and and with the standard that God has, God has given now. Okay. But some folks might think that, you know, Rachel Maddow is just doing this, this partisan smear job by associating Trump and Wallace Maddow is a a self-avowed liberal. Now she has a PhD in political science from Oxford, but she is a liberal. So maybe we could turn to a conservative here. We could consult Stuart Stevens. He's a Republican strategist who worked on the last five presidential campaigns before this 2016 one. To say nothing of the dozens of of Republican members of Congress and senators and governors that he's worked for, this dude is a legit true blue Republican. And he's less reserved than the liberal Rachel Maddow when he talks about Wallace and Trump. Um, Look, uh, this isn't complicated. Donald Trump is running as George Wallace. Um, But he's really almost doing it with more deliberateness than George Wallace uh, did. Wallace at least pretended at times to be civil. What's remarkable about what Donald Trump is doing is he's sort of exalting in this thugocracy. He's out there red-faced and shouting and playing the thug and encouraging people to do that. He's
1: inciting violence.
0: Both Wallace and Trump like Stephen says, speak of violence, which which ends up generating violence at their events. That violence bubbles up out of the rhetoric and and, and, and gets made into action. The violence that that the candidates promise, Wallace and Trump, is against outsiders, whether they're black folks, Latinos, Muslims, or, or just white progressives, against people who are changing things, in other words. Trump talks about making America great again, a return to, to when things were, were good and, and right. But Wallace was doing the exact same thing. That phrase, make America great again, could just as easily have been Wallace's. Wallace was, was promising a return to, to before the Civil Rights Act of 64, before the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and before the feds were, were forcing integration of, of schools in the late sixties. White folks, America had changed. And victories for black America have always made conservative white folks lose their shit. And there was a very noticeable, a a, a palpable, visceral reaction to those mid-60s victories for black folks. And just like clockwork, the next big victory for black folks, the election of the first black president, produces Trump. Trump emerges onto the political stage very early in Obama's presidency by leading the birther movement. This movement that insisted that Obama was really African, not American, probably a Muslim too. That's a lot of stuff that still persists, that Obama is is somehow not quite American. Go to conservative media. It's still there. And see, that's exactly how black leaders were treated by the FBI and by citizens back in the 60s. King had to be a, a, a communist under the control of the Russians. He wasn't just a civil rights leader. He had, there was, there was a, this scary outsider-ness to him. That's what many people in the FBI, including Hoover thought that he was somehow controlled by the communists. They, they couldn't make sense of King without making him very literally an outsider, like a puppet of Moscow. And the FBI did, did what they could to propagate this message to citizens, who, of course, you know, gobbled it all up. In the end, it's, it's this idea that, that black folks are outsiders. Or, or, or in the end, everyone non-white is an outsider. White is real. White is inside. And King was an outsider. Obama is an outsider. And white America responded with, with fear and anger and, and hatred. Each time, and and a leader emerges, whether it's Wallace or, or Trump, to, to channel that anger and promise this aggressiveness and this violence to put down the outsiders. But even more broadly, it's this broader cultural change that produced Wallace and that conservative backlash that he represented. It's black rights. It's women's rights. It's the anti-war protesters, socialists, all that, all that tumult and and turbulence of of the 60s. And now it's the first black president, the potential first female president, gay rights, socialism, all the changes that that have all the old conservative white folks all worked up. So back in the 60s, with with black folks and, and white leftists protesting for change, taking to the streets, Wallace really hammered this political phrase, law and order to suggest that he'd bring this hard and, and heavy hand to the protesters and, and the unrest. Back then, it was civil rights protesters and, you know, leftist students and socialists and, and and the women's liberation movement. And now it's, it's you know, it's Black Lives Matter and leftist students, feminists, gay rights, socialism, all the stuff that's changing now. And it's this, this idea of law and order, that phrase that says, I'm going to return things. I'm going to bring things. I'm going to bring order back. All these people, all these people clamoring, all these people trying to attack us from the outside. I'm going to bring law and order. I've seen Wallace speeches just overloaded with that phrase law and order Trump too, same phrase. The phrase means something very specific when it's used by white conservative politicians. It's about promising to give the police more power, to be more aggressive, more militaristic, more unforgiving. To put down people asking to be considered inside, to put them down violently with the the power of the state. Both candidates, Wallace and and Trump, had this idea that that cops were, were just taking it too easy on protesters and black folks and whoever else. Here's a Wallace television ad that, that really preys on that fear of somehow everything devolving into into lawlessness. The sound you'll hear is like, is this Molotov cocktail or, or something being thrown through a window, like like all small businesses, all mom and pops were going to get firebombed by black protesters or, or SDS kids or something back then.
1: Why are more and more millions of Americans turning to Governor Wallace? Open a little business and see what might happen. As president, I will stand up for your local police and firemen in protecting your safety and property.
0: Now here's Wallace prefiguring Trump's rhetoric on on how uh, cops can't be as forceful as they need to be. Something that Trump returns to really often.
1: The Supreme Court of our country has handcuffed the police. They have rendered decisions today that are absolutely ludicrous and asinine. Turn people to loose every day who are self-proven and confessed murderers of five or more people.
0: Now here's Trump responding with the same sort of fear-mongering. They're all out to get you. The attacks on our police, homicides, illegal immigrants with criminal records. Trump eventually adopted the phrase law and order straight from Wallace's speeches back then. He lifted it right directly out of Wallace's playbook. There can be no prosperity without law and order. I am the law and order candidate. But what both candidates also relied on was this idea that that everyone is against us, not just the criminals, the protesters, the the black folks, the immigrants, the Muslims, the socialists, but then also the game itself. The whole thing is rigged. It's just us, guys. It's just us good white folks, mostly men, against the world. Wallace and Trump both told their followers that, that the press is rigged against us. The polls are rigged against us. The whole election is rigged. Literally rigged. They would say that, that the press who, who, who come to the rallies and write down what I say and they write down what y'all do and they write down what y'all say, oh, they're just lying.
1: Reporters who covered George Wallace in 1968, like L.A. Times reporter Jack Nelson, uh, said at the time that Wallace would often make them, make the reporters the target uh, at his campaign rallies. Uh, Jack Nelson wrote at the time that Wallace spoke so angrily at times that he inflamed the emotions of supporters and hecklers alike. Along with other veteran political reporters, I sometimes described audience reaction as scary and chilling.
0: And violence becomes an option when you're surrounded, right? When the press and the whole so-called democratic process is allegedly rigged against you and the hordes are at the gates, those dangerous black thugs and Muslim terrorists and white progressive America destroyers, all those outsiders, they're, 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 they're coming in on us. Violence b- becomes a, an option at that point, Right.
1: Everywhere he goes these days, Wallace gives the impression that his real opponents in this election are not Nixon and Humphrey, but the polls and the press. Wallace spends almost as much time attacking pollsters and reporters and editors as he does the other presidential candidates. Are we going to show some of these pollsters that
0: they don't know what they're talking about because they're trying to rig the election.
1: George Wallace apparently has heard that the next national public opinion polls will show him to have reached a peak and to be beginning to decline because he charged today the polls are rigged. He says the polls don't show the full extent of his popularity and that any poll appearing now showing him losing ground will be a lie.
0: That's what he said. And, But the problem we have, the biggest problem we have, I think, is the press. The New York Times is totally dishonest, totally dishonest, and I'm afraid the election's going to be rigged. I have to be honest, and and I'm telling you, November 8th, we better be careful because that election's going to be rigged. And I hope the Republicans are watching closely, or it's going to be taken away from us. All right, Mr. Trump, uh, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate thank you. it. And there are people who actually believe that they actually believed Wallace. And they believe Trump now, I think Ray was was someone who 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 truly did believe Wallace like everything he said. Wallace's sort of three part message Ray was all in on it's no, number one is the outsiders who who are lesser than you are trying to hurt you, take your stuff, ruin the country, etc two the press and the polls. And, and the election itself is rigged against us that somehow this, this might be in an unwinnable battle because the black folks and the immigrants and the Muslims and the women and the socialists and the gays and all these folks have, have maybe fooled the press or they've coerced the press or taken over the press and the media and the whole electoral structure. And they might very well rig the election, steal the election. And so. The third part, we have to put them down as as viciously and as violently as need be. We need more cops acting more violently. If you believe everything that that Wallace or or Trump says, you're rightly terrified. For yourself, for your family, your friends, and everything you hold dear. I go back to, to James's brother and how he talked about how there are millions of rays just waiting to be radicalized. Who is out there being radicalized by Trump? Trump very often uses a phrase to conclude assertions. He, he, he'll, he'll add this to the end of of so many things or else we don't have a country anymore. He always says this, we have to round up immigrants or else we don't have a country anymore. Hillary Clinton winning means we don't have a country anymore. Vote for Trump or else we won't have a country anymore. Seriously, Google that Google Trump and that phrase, we won't have a country. And it's all over his rhetoric. What if you actually believed him? People do people believe him. What if you felt like your country was headed toward its end? Like our country could be ending in November, so, will there be an assassination? Probably not. I don't want to sound too much like an alarmist here. It is a different time than the 60s. Things are better than they were back then. 2016 is is not the same. Culturally, socially, it's not the same as the mid to late 60s. Now, it does turn out... We found in the past year that there are more folks than we thought willing to vote for a white supremacist, proto-fascist candidate. And that's been a a real surprise. But we have to hope that that 2016 is is too late for those old ideas to return to the forefront. And secondly, there are a lot of uh, ingredients that go into making an assassin like Ray. You know, I've made the case that, that Wallace radicalized and and activated Ray, but it's not like Wallace could have mobilized just anybody. He's not, he, you know, he wasn't a sorcerer. Ray was the right material psychologically, socially, culturally. There was a lot that went into making Ray the assassin, but Trump supporters have already been violent. They've already shown us that they can be violent. The hope is that somehow the violence remains contained to some degree, that somehow they keep a lid on it. And much of that is going to be on Trump and on the Republican party to keep your shit together. They like, don't let your goons out, keep them on leashes as much as you can, because you, because the leader of your party now has, has done a lot to get these people going. But I want to return to King now to, to close this all out. The terrible irony is that King's final project would have saved the Rays. James and his family and also those, those millions of Rays that Jerry described. His occupation of Washington and those demands would have saved the Rays. If you were a poor white back then, King was the best friend you had. Not the Republicans, not the Democrats, but King and his demand for a total, direct, and immediate abolition of poverty, a guaranteed income for all Americans. King's black Christian socialism would have helped far more white folks than black. Just a month before he was shot in Atlanta. King gathered poor, country-ass white folks. One was a daughter of a Klan family. He got them together with Latinos and black folks and and Native Americans. All these folks on the bottom, black, white, and otherwise, to unify, go to Washington and demand a, a long overdue reshuffling of the economic deck. Ray was precisely who King was fighting for when Ray shot him. Ray came from ugly midwestern poverty. The sort of rural destitution that King expressly emphasized in his last years. I I didn't get much into it, but it was it was truly horrific Ray's upbringing. He's just a little kid and and imagine your your little sister running into the house just f- fucking torched and she burns alive in the middle of your house and then that house is eventually cannibalized piece by piece for firewood to combat the kind of winners you get in the midwest when you don't have money for firewood or coal or whatever that house was eventually nothing they ended up without a house because they burned it all piece by piece ray was an outcast at school reeking of, of piss and poverty And that's exactly who King was going to demand the country to address. All the folks on the bottom. He was to lead a demand that those punished by racism and capitalism be protected and fucking cared for like humans. The Ray family was overrun with criminals. That's true. The Rays were what we'd call thugs they long found themselves on, on the losing end of the American dream. But on April 4th, 1968, that poor white boy ended the last best chance for his people when he killed the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.
1: number one question is in the best stick up number one question is Can the best stick up number one question is number one question is Can the best stick up number one question is the best stick